The Gospel, a basic truth, is sponsored by One Jump Ahead, a nonprofit sport ministry with a focus on strengthening families on our journey together. They provide a family oriented sport with Christ centered values and a unique look into how jump rope goes hand in hand with the gospel and our daily walk with Christ. Check them out. Go to onejumpahead.org. That's onejumpahead.org. Greetings. Today we are going to look at the gospel as it is found in the book of Matthew. Matthew is the first book of the New Testament. It's the first of the four gospels. In all likelihood, it was not the first gospel to be written. It was probably Mark. But it is the first book in the New Testament because it is the transition book between the Old Testament and the New Testament. And for that, you have to understand that Matthew, the tax collector, a disciple of Jesus, writes his gospel to Jews and likely living outside of Israel, what we call the diaspora. And so he's writing to tell them about the fulfillment of the Old Testament scriptures. If you can think of a, let's say, a murder mystery, you're reading through the book and you get to the last chapter and somebody's ripped it out and you're left hanging. Who did it? Was it Colonel Mustard in the library with a pipe? I don't know because it's not complete. In many ways, the Old Testament left the Jews hanging. Uh, they knew that the, the Messianic king was to come. They knew there was these prophecies, one who would rule and reign forever and make an end to sin. And then there's silence, and this goes on for over 300 years. And so Matthew is writing to tell them, we know how it ends. It ends in Jesus of Nazareth. He is the Messianic king. He put an end to the Old Testament covenant and introduced a new covenant. Matthew, writing to Jews to convince them that someone is the Messiah, that is not a small task. And so as we look at the Gospel of Matthew, we see that he uses about 60 different Old Testament passages to show that Jesus fulfilled the prophecies and that he is the Messiah, descendant of David. Now, in any book, there's always a plot device that moves the storyline along, all right? So in a murder mystery, it always starts out with a murder at the beginning of the book, and then the plot device is the investigation that brings us to a conclusion. Let's briefly compare and contrast John, which we did last time. The plot device there were the seven great miracles or signs, and each one is greater and more powerful and grandeur in the story to show, finally, with, of course, the, the raising of Lazarus, that Jesus was God. Well, we're not quite so lucky here in Matthew. The plot device is five great dissertations or five teaching dissertations. And these are not easy to get through. Matthew is, um, there's a lot there. It's a big book, and it's not something you can just sit down and read in an afternoon. You really have to study it. So the only reference I'm going to make to the dissertations is to the first one, and we probably all know it and familiar with it. This is the Sermon on the Mount, and that's probably, you can find that in chapters 5 through 8 of Matthew. And that's how he moves the plot along. Matthew, unlike, say, Mark or Luke, doesn't always put things in chronological order, but he groups them together so that they fit within these five great teachings. We're probably not going to speak too much more about that, but that is how the book progresses. Now, the key verse to Matthew, and every New Testament book has a key verse, key to, the key verse is Matthew five seventeen. Jesus says, Do not think I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Again, he's writing to Jews and saying, look, this was Jesus' purpose in coming, not to abolish, 
the law and the prophets, but to fulfill them. Matthew writes in layers. One thing we notice is that while he has the same message as John, that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, who came to put an end to sin, John emphasized the deity of Christ, okay? And so he spent most of his effort looking at Jesus as the Son of God. The reverse is true for Matthew. He says all those things too, but he concentrates on Jesus as the Messiah, the Christ. So first thing he starts out with, he presents Jesus as king, King Jesus. Speaking to Jews, of course, if you're going to convince them of this, you've got to show that Jesus is a descendant of David and he is the rightful in the line as the heir to be king. And so Matthew chapter 1, we start out with the genealogy of Jesus Christ and that he is the son of David and the son of Abraham. Now, someone will point out to me, well, actually, it's the genealogy of Joseph, the stepfather. And that's true. And now we got to get into a legal issue. This is a legal presumption, and it's a legal presumption that is true today as it was 2,000 years ago, and it is true in every culture going back to the beginning of time. And that legal presumption is that a child's father is the man who was married to his mother when he was born. I mean, we know that today. Let's say a young woman has got a baby, and she's single, and she goes to social services and says, you know, I need some help. First, they're going to ask her, are you married? No. Were you married when the baby was born? Yes. Who were you married to? I was married to Jake. Okay. They call Jake in and say, we're going to court, and you got to pay child support. Now, Jake can say, well, wait a minute. I haven't lived with Christy for years. That child's not mine. She was living with Cody. So let's get Cody in and test his DNA. He's the real father. And that's when the judge smiles and laughs and says, son, you are the legal father because you were married to Christy when the baby was born. And even if the DNA comes back and shows that Cody provided the DNA material, you are the legal father. And that's exactly what we're looking at here with Matthew. So Jesus' claim to the throne of David must go through his legal father, which is Joseph, all right? And so that is what's established here. Now, some of you may say, yeah, but I thought Jesus was supposed to be, you know, like a real descendant of David. Well, he is. And Luke takes that up and shows through the lineage of Mary that Jesus did actually descend bloodwise from David. But he gets his legal claim to the throne through his stepfather, Joseph. So King Jesus, King of the Jews. In chapter 2, the Gentiles show up, and these are the Magi. So these are the senior civil servant scientists, astronomers, astrologers. These are the smart people that ran the government for the kingdoms in the Mesopotamian area era for thousands of years. And they were always... If not the kingmakers, they were certainly needed to always acknowledge who the king was. And so they show up in Jerusalem to to go to King Herod and said, we saw the sign in the sky that there is a new king that was born to the Jews. Well, Herod is the king, but he's not the real king. I mean, he's a fraudulent king. He he is not descended. He was not elected. he, He was selected by the Romans 
but he wasn't, didn't really have any legal authority other than the Roman army behind him. And so he was a little concerned. But the point for our story is, not only does Jesus have the genealogy to make a claim to the throne, but even the Gentiles, the wise guys, I mean, the smart men there, they say, where is Jesus? You know, where is the child born king of the Jews? Matthew continues this this line throughout the rest of his gospel. When Jesus is before Pilate, the governor, at his trial, he does not speak. Pilate's getting a little frustrated, and he finally just looks at him and goes, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus says, yes, it is as you say. At the crucifixion, the Romans, as was their custom, they would take a plaque uh, aboard, and they would write the, the crime that this person was being crucified because of, and it would be nailed over the head of the person being crucified. So murderer, thief, those kind of things. In the case of Jesus, Pilate had the charge written out against him, which was over his head, and it said, this is Jesus, king of the Jews. So Matthew begins and carries through this idea that Jesus is king of the Jews, but about halfway or so into this story, Matthew presents Jesus as king of all nations of the world. And this is an incredible turning point in the story of Matthew. And it's a turning point really in the whole Bible. Because we see at the end of chapter 12, the nation of Israel rejects Jesus. And starting in chapter 13, Jesus now turns his back on the people And he speaks to only those like his disciples or those who want to listen. And when he talks to the people, he only talks in parables. It's quite fascinating, but you read, there are no parables until you get to chapter 13. Now, so Jesus starts out his public ministry, and his message is, the kingdom of heaven is near. He is offering himself as the king, and he's offering it to them. And he's doing signs and wonders to validate that that he is the right king for this kingdom that's being offered to the Jews. And they reject him. But pointedly in chapter 12, Jesus cast a demon out of a man. Many people were there. They were just blown away. And so they go to the chief priests and the Pharisees and they go, look, we know what we saw. This guy cast out a demon. How, How can he not be the Messiah? Well, they get the White House spin machine going, and they go, we can't admit he's Messiah because we'll lose our position. So they come up with this idea, you know, good PR people. Well, okay, okay, he cast out a demon, but he did it not by the power of God, because he's not, but he did it by the power of Satan. And in the story, it's Beelzebub. And Jesus very, the the story, if we were to go through it, I mean, he, he very clearly turns his back now on them. And we are told elsewhere in Matthew how that generation of Israel has been rejected. Now, there's a little rabbit trail we have to go down, I think, because we have some application to us. Were there still Jews in Israel who believed in Jesus? Yes. But it didn't matter, because when the leaders rejected Jesus, judgment fell on the entire nation. We see that in the Old Testament. When did... God decided that it was time to send the Jews into exile. When King Manasseh turned his back on God, judgment was ordained. Now, it was several years before it was carried out. 
And the same thing here. This generation was judged because they rejected Jesus, and the end did not come. So this was probably 30 AD, and the end did not come for them until 70 AD. Folks, we say we are a nation under God. Well, you and I may be under God, but our leaders have rejected Jesus. They have rejected God. They say there is no God. He does not see the wicked things that we do. We are a nation under judgment. So when Jesus now turns his attention, we're in chapter 13, he's speaking to a crowd, and he, he gives these parables. Dismisses the crowd, they go into the house, and the disciples go, what is that? Why all these riddles? And Jesus explains, I'm not speaking plainly to them anymore, only to you, to the believers. And then he goes through and he explains how to interpret the parables. The very first parable, the parable of the sower, this is the sower that goes into the field and sows the seed. Anyway, back in the house, Jesus explains this parable, and he says to them, the one who sows the seed is the son of man, and the field in which he sows is the world. And so now Matthew is presenting Jesus not as king, Jesus, king of the Jews, but king of all nations. We see in Matthew 21, the Pharisees and the priests are all over Jesus, and Jesus says, I tell you, the kingdom of God is taken away from you and given to people who produce its fruit. We see in chapter 25 of Matthew. Now, 24 and 25, Jesus is on the Mount of Olives. This is the last week or so of his life before the crucifixion, and they're asking him about end times. And so Jesus says, and we'll read part of this, when the Son of Man comes in his glory, all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations. Again, Matthew is presenting Jesus as king of the nations. And then the third part of presenting Jesus as king, Matthew presents him as king of all creation. I'm sure you're familiar with the verses. These are the last verses in Matthew. This is the Great Commission. And Jesus came and said to them, his disciples, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Jesus is presenting himself as king of creation. All right, so while Matthew is presenting Jesus as king, at the same time, Matthew is presenting Jesus as the new Moses, the new lawgiver, the mediator of the new covenant. Now, if you, as you read through Matthew, you see some very peculiar things. Matthew goes to great lengths to show similarities and parallels between the life of Moses and Jesus. When Moses was born, Pharaoh tried to kill all the little Hebrew boys. When Jesus was born, King Herod tried to kill all the, the boys that, that were born in and around Bethlehem. Moses gave, wrote five great books, the Torah, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Jesus gives five dissertations on the law. Moses went up onto the top of Mount Sinai to receive the law from God. He was up there for 40 days and 40 nights, and he didn't eat or drink. Jesus was in the desert 40 days and 40 nights being tempted, didn't eat or drink. So you can see it goes on. So trying to show that this is the new Moses. Now, in these five great dissertations or teachings, I tell you we should study them. Why? John says it best. 
And this is in the Last Supper. This is John 14, 21, and I recommend you memorize this. Whoever has my commands and obeys them, he is the one who loves me, and he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I too will love him and show myself to him. Whoever has my commands and obeys them, he's the one who loves me. Now, I know lots of folks go, oh, I love Jesus. You know, I, I sing praise music all the time. I have this burning in my whatever part of my body. I'm, I'm just filled with love for Jesus. Well, according to Jesus, that isn't love. The only way you show your love for Jesus is by obeying his commands. One of the ways you can do that is to go through these five great dissertations. I had a uh, pastor once who was listening to me teach on this, and he goes, oh, I don't need to study that at all. And I go, really? He goes, yeah, I I have the two greatest commandments. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself, and I don't need to study any of the other commands. And I said, brother, in context, the Pharisee that asked Jesus, which was the greatest of the Ten Commandments? Jesus gave that answer. Jesus did a whole lot more teaching than the Ten Commandments. What do you say about those? It's interesting uh, as we look at that first great dissertation. You can concentrate on chapter 5. Jesus over and over says, You have heard, but I tell you. Each time, he gives one of the Ten Commandments. You have heard it said, do not murder. That's from the Ten Commandments. But I tell you, don't say your brother is a fool. You have heard it from the Ten Commandments that it says, do not commit adultery. But I tell you, do not lust in your heart. And so Jesus does give commands over and above what was in the Ten Commandments and and, and the Law of Moses, and we would do well to study them. So Jesus is presented as the new Moses, the new lawgiver. Now, God used Moses to institute the Old Covenant. There was a sacrifice of blood, and then Moses stood between the people and God for this covenant. He was the mediator. Jesus is presented as the new priest, and he is also the sacrifice. So he presents himself So he institutes a new covenant. So all of this is presented to the Jews to say, the old has gone, it's been fulfilled, and now this is the new. Now, although Matthew does spend most of his time showing Jesus as the messianic king and the new lawgiver, Matthew also makes clear that Jesus is presented as God. We see back in the birth narrative how the angel appears to Joseph, the stepfather and says, don't be afraid to take Mary, because what is conceived in her is not by another man, it's by the power of the Holy Spirit. And, and this child will be born, and he will save his people from their sins. Only God saves people and forgives sins. He is, the angel is saying to Joseph, this is the Son of God. And then he quotes a verse from Isaiah. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. And again, Matthew continues with this theme. So you've got all these layers going on in this this story. Matthew 17, on the Mount of Transfiguration. He is up on the mountain, Jesus, with Peter, James, and John. Jesus is transfigured. They get to see some of the glory that he had before the incarnation, and then a cloud comes over the mountain, and they can't see, but they hear a voice coming out of the heavens saying, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. 
So that is the voice of God the Father saying, this is my beloved son. All right, so the turning point in Matthew is in chapter 13 when he turns from the Jews and now focuses on those who will hear and believe. But the high point is actually on the Mount of Transfiguration. This is in Matthew 16. And he asks his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they give several examples. And he says, but who do you say that I am? And then, of course, Simon Peter replies. He is now inspired by the Holy Spirit. He says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now, I'm going to stop right there. That is our memory verse today. So Matthew chapter 16, verse 16. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now, what happens next? Jesus says, bless you, Simon Barjona, meaning Simon, son of Jonah. For flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Now, here's where we get into all the trouble. I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock, I should build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. There are some who say Jesus is building his church on Peter. Well, if all you have is an English Bible, or all you have is an English Bible based on underlying Latin or Vulgate text, that might be a reasonable conclusion, but it would be wrong. We look at the underlying Koinonia Greek, and there are some different words here. Jesus says, I tell you, you are, and the Greek word is petros. It means rock, movable rock. Could be a pebble, could be a boulder, something you throw. So you, you are from now on are going to be called Petros, and that has a gender to it. In English, we don't have genders, but in many languages they do. And so the gender of that word, Petros, is male. And on this rock, and there's a different underlying Greek word, and it's Petra, and it means bedrock, immovable rock. It's a different word, and the gender is feminine. And Jesus, referring to Petra, says, and I will build my church That's where I'm going to build my church, is on this rock. So what is the rock that Jesus is going to build his church? It is the confession that Peter just gave. He's building the church on Christ, the Son of God. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and his righteousness. On Christ, the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. Friends, we need to stand on the rock, which is the Christ, the Son of God. If you've got one foot on Christ and one foot on Peter, you're going down. The phrase that Matthew uses often, the name that that Jesus calls himself by, is always the Son of Man. Why why did he use that? I mean, we know he's the Christ, the Son of God. Why, Why is he continually through his gospel referring to Jesus referring to himself as the Son of Man? Friends, this is not something new. This is something the Jews would have understood, all right? And for that, we go back to the book of Daniel. So Daniel is what? Five, six hundred years earlier. Daniel has four great visions. And in the first vision, and the first vision really sets the scene for the next three. The next three simply give greater detail to the first one. So the first one is really key to understanding the visions of Daniel. And Daniel says, I saw in the night vision, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days, and was presented before him, and to him, the son of man, was given 
glory and a kingdom, and all the peoples and nations and languages worshipped him. And his dominion is an everlasting dominion. It will not pass away. And his kingdom is one that shall never be destroyed. So when Jesus refers to himself as the Son of Man, he, he is pointing the Jews back to this vision of Daniel. Well, what is this vision of? Obviously, this is the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity. And, and that is how he is presented. Matthew, again, is a, a very complex book, uh, but I, I do highly recommend that you, you look for these uh, great dissertations. You're, you're not going to read it in any one of these in an hour. It's going to take some time to look at it and to study it and to, uh, to soak it all in. And just realize the importance of the book of Matthew as history turns. You know, we, we get the completion of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New Testament and the New Covenant. Friends, uh, let me pray with you. And um, dear Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you for yet another testimony of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we are so thankful that he does fulfill all of the prophecies of the Messianic King. And he is the new Moses, the, the new lawgiver. Oh, Lord, we thank you. Help us as we understand and study and help us to be able to to share with our friends and family as, as we look at the gospel here in Matthew. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.